you would, turn with me to Psalm chapter 16. Book of Psalms, chapter 16. As you're turning there, just one quick announcement again, just to reiterate what Daniel already said. We have a newcomer's lunch this afternoon after this service. It's going to be in banquet room A. If you are a newcomer, you've never been here before, even if you have been here before, have just never gotten a chance to get to that, we would love to have you, get a chance to meet you, get a chance for you to meet us, and just to answer any questions you might have, not to mention it's free food, so it's hard to pass up. So we would love to have you guys, though, for that. This morning, we're going to be doing more of a topical-type message, uh, which means instead of staying in one passage and really going through that whole passage, we're going to be focusing on a topic from Scripture with looking at a number of different passages. So just to give you a heads up on that too. We're going to start in Psalm 16 here as we read together, but actually we're not going to come back to it till the end. Uh, But there's such hope in here. It's a great place to start and to finish. So if you would stand with me in honor to God's word, we will read together Psalm 16. A miktam of David... Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As to the saints and the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see decay. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand our pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We ask that you would delight us with yourself today as we learn more about you. We would delight in you, have our hearts excited by you, that spirit you would teach us today from your word and enliven, open our eyes, open our ears, open our minds that we might see you and love you. We ask this all because of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. What do you think of when you hear the word idol? Maybe a movie reference. You've got Indiana Jones and you're thinking he's got this bag of sand. He's sort of dumping it out. And there's this little golden figurine and he's getting ready to, to make the switch. Maybe it's, it's the Buddha in the Chinese restaurant that you see this, this big guy, an idol. Maybe it's a, the Hindu pantheon from India. A number of these different weird-looking creatures are all labeled as gods. Maybe it's something that hits a little more closer at home. Maybe it's material possessions. You think of a car, or a home, a, a game system, your children. Maybe it's immaterial things. Health, safety, comfort. All of these have a potential to be idols. We're going to talk about idolatry today. First, let's talk about a definition of idolatry, though. In a simple, consolidated form, idolatry is misplaced worship. 
misplaced worship. Worship is a recognition of the value or worthfulness, the wonderfulness of something or someone. When I am an idolater, I worship, I say this thing, this person has great worth or great value. What idolatry is, is actually having a small view of God. It is a misunderstanding of holiness. God is holy, God is set apart, God is beyond us. He is better, awesomer, more wonderful than anything else. And when we worship something else, we say this thing is of equal value to God. We minimize him down to that thing. We degrade him in our idolatry. An idol is anything I want or value more than God. How do I know what I'm idolizing, though? You're talking about idolatry. How do I know what I'm idolizing? Here's a few questions. You can write these down, think them through. I'd encourage you to go back to to them later today. What do you invest your time, energy, and effort in? What do you invest your money in? What do you think about often? What are you willing to sin to get? And if this thing were taken from your life, would you still be satisfied with God or not? Whatever that thing is, that is what you love, that is what you value, that is what you worship. If we're each honest, we will recognize we each have idols. This is not an individual type thing. We each have this issue of idolatry. The temptation is then to say, well, if it's a problem that everybody has, and we're all Christians, you know, it's a problem, okay, maybe it's not that big a deal. And on the contrary, I would suggest it is a huge issue. It is far more costly and serious than we could ever imagine. Today we're going to talk about four truths about idolatry. Four facts we must understand to have any hope of true life. We'll start with the location of idolatry. If you would, go in your Bibles to Ezekiel 14. So this is what I was talking about. We're going to go through a few different passages. We're going to go to Ezekiel 14 first here. The book of Ezekiel, he's a prophet of God writing during the time of Judah's going into captivity. Judah went into captivity in three waves. Ezekiel lives during that time period. And Israel is still, even in spite of facing God's present judgment on them for their sin in the land being taken out of it, they are still pursuing sin. Ezekiel writes condemning them and calling them to repentance still. We look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 14. Then some elders of Israel came to me, that's Ezekiel, and sat down before me. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, stop there for just a second. This looks like a really good start. Israel's leaders, the people that are overseeing the community of Israel, come to the prophet of God seeking wisdom from him. Sounds good. Here's what God says. Son of man, verse 3, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and have put right before their faces the stumbling block 
of their iniquity, should I be consulted by them at all? It's a rhetorical question. You have these idols you hold to, and yet you come to me, you want to talk with me, God, and yet you have these things that you say are of equal value to me. Why would I ever talk with you? You belittle me like this. He says there are two locations of idolatry. He says they have idols in their heart, and they have put right before their faces these stumbling blocks, these idols. There are idols outside of us and idols inside of us. We're going to actually take those in reverse order. We're going to start with outside of us. That idea of the stumbling block placed right in front of our faces. We see back earlier, you can write this down in chapter 8, verse 12 of Ezekiel, that the leaders actually are doing this very blatantly. They, they are hidden in their houses, but God shows Ezekiel a vision of these leaders individually in their house worshiping these gods. They have placed these things right in front of their faces. And they worship them. These physical items, images. And they sacrifice to these things. They, they burn incense to these things. Like they would to Yahweh. This is typically our much more common thought of idols. Physical things. Work. Car, home, comfort, security, good grades, a spot on the sports team, acceptance or admiration of others, health. A lot of things that would go under the label of stuff. The list is endless. We have the propensity to make anything an idol, honestly. All that you have in your life, everything has the possibility of being an idol. We even have Christian idols. Good things that we do, that we do for the wrong reasons. Family devotions to, to have a Christian family. Having obedient children that show that you are a good parent. Being wise financially to make sure that your family is secure and comfortable. Not bad things themselves, but they can be idolatrous. The issue is that idols are not just something outside of us, though. These physical things that we can walk away from or, or remove from our presence. But actually, idolatry is not just outward, it is inward as well. It is inside of us. That we set up these idols. What Ezekiel talks about here. Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts. It occurs within. God is not just focused on a what of idolatry, but a why of idolatry. Why do you do this? Why do you love this? And ultimately, our, our biggest idol is us. Your biggest idol is you. And this is true all around. You think of Israel. Why do they worship this little golden thing? It is not because the thing is so awesomely wonderful. It's because it benefits them. They worship it because it gives them rain, they think. Or it gives health to their family. Or, or it keeps them safe. 
the very things of this life, the things we even set in front of our faces, are not the ultimate issue of our idolatry. It is us that when we pursue these even physical things, it's for our own benefit. We are focused on ourselves. We want to be God. It is a Genesis 3 issue. We actually say we are better than God. I am good. I know what is good for me more than God. I am all-knowing. I know what is my best thing for me. I am more caring than God for myself. And I am more able than all-powerful God to do exactly what is needed for me. We are our idols. Why is it so important that we understand this, though? I would suggest it greatly affects how we deal with idolatry, how we battle with idolatry, how we worship correctly. If idolatry is not just something that I have and possess out here that I can move away from but within, I start to realize that what I do when I oftentimes put these away is I actually just find a better, bigger, shinier idol. I put away this one to find this one and now worship this thing instead. Or I put away the secular idol to find the Christian idol that looks acceptable and good and right. And yet I'm still an idolater. I still do not worship my God at all. Think of children in the nursery. The two little boys that are fighting over the truck. And we would be tempted to say the truck is the idol. And it is. It's the thing right before their face that they really want. I would suggest there is something far deeper, though. You can take the truck away from the little boys, and you have not stopped them being an idolater. You have not even dealt with the issue of their idolatry. Those little boys want to be God. They want to own the truck. They want to control the other. They want to do what they want to do. And until we get to the heart of idolatry, we're not helping idolaters, and we're not helping ourselves at all. We're not worshiping correctly just by removing these physical idols from in front of us. You think of this, how do you interact with your coworkers, with your spouse, with your siblings? And you want this thing. It affects that you say, like, you know what, you can just have it, fine, whatever. You can do that, fine. You haven't stopped being an idolater. You've got to do with your own heart. What, what's driving you to want this thing? As you seek to help others, you can't just deal with these physical things in front of them. You've got to get to their heart. If you want to shepherd your kids well, you've got to deal with their heart. Why those little boys want that toy? The toy is not the issue. It's their heart. To do any less, you have not dealt with idolatry. You've not changed their worship at all toward God. Let me quickly put a plug in here. We have the Introduction to Biblical Counseling Conference coming up in March. And I would greatly encourage you, as you think through these things, we would love to help and encourage you in how to better get to your own heart and get to others' hearts as you shepherd them and encourage them. That conference will be excellent to help you think through and process toward these things. I would encourage you to really very seriously consider attending.
Idolatry, though, is not just a location issue. It is. It's outside of us, and it's inside of us, but now we need to move to the effects of it. It's not just pervasive. It's destructive. First, idolatry has an effect on us. If you would, go back to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah is writing the same time period as Ezekiel. The people going into captivity. Chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. Listen to what he says here. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says Yahweh, What injustice did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty? Idolatry makes you empty. See, we start and it looks so good. Hebrews talks about the passing pleasures of sin. That it looks like it's going to satisfy. And we pursue it and we pursue it and we pursue it. And we start to realize that I have to pursue it more and more and more if I want to get anything out of it. And pretty soon I'm hooked on this. It's actually how addictions are started. I habitually pursue this sin so much that I know nothing else. And at the end of it all, as I come up, having pursued this greatly, I come up, I'm empty. Idolatry is a horrible master that demands everything from you and gives nothing. It takes and takes and takes. And at the end of the day, you come up empty and lacking. You go just over verse 11. God is still talking here. Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. These people work hard. We strive after this idol to keep this thing satisfying us. We hew out these cisterns expecting to get something from it. And in the end of it, it's dry and empty. We put all this energy toward our idols. And we have nothing to show for it. We forsake the fountain of living water for nothing. Third... Let me read Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8 for you. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. When you pursue idols, you lose your ability to have joy in anything else. Your ability to perceive and take in and know the delights of life, the very good things that God has given to you, you lose any ability at all to delight in any of those things. 
It robs you of that completely. You become empty like them. Unable to enjoy anything at all. Not only does idolatry affect us, though, it also affects others. You can write these verses down. We're only going to cover one of them. Hebrews 12, 15. 1 John 2, 10. And then where we're going to look, Exodus 20, verses 3 through 6. Our idolatry affects others. All sin that we have in our life is, has an effect on others around us. I want to especially, though, focus parents... What you do in moderation, your children will do in excess. Exodus 20, verses 3 through 6. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. This is Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. Idolatry, other gods. Notice where he goes at the end of this. I, the Lord, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Very interestingly here in the passage, God connects idolatry with parenting and talks about the devastating effects it has on the next generations to follow. Parents, what you do, your kids are watching. They are naturally idolaters in their little hearts themselves. But you can add to that. You can help them create bigger and better idols by your own actions of idolatry. At the same time, there's potential that as you worship God... And show them a worthy, valuable God that you love. You can call them toward true worship and away from their idolatry. Your children are watching. Third, idolatry has an effect on God. Ezekiel 6, 9 says this. Then those of you, this is speaking to Israel, who escape, remember me, God, among the nations to which they will be carried captive. How I have been hurt by their adulterous hearts, which turned away from me, and by their eyes, which played the harlot after their idols. And they will loathe themselves in their own sight for the evils which they have committed for all of their abominations. And you're sort of like, big deal, he's God. Yeah, okay, he's hurt, but it's, it's God. He can handle it. Why is it such a big deal? Why does God care about this so much? Malachi 1.11 says this, For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name. And a grain offering that is pure, for my name will be great among the nations, says Yahweh of hosts. The people in Malachi's day were not doing idolatry outwardly. They just weren't worshiping God well. They're bringing broken sacrifices to him instead of giving him the best. And God says, that is unacceptable. I am the best. I am the greatest. I am the only God. And I should be worshiped as such. To do anything less, you might as well do nothing at all. It's a holiness issue. 
He talks about how, their na- how his name is being profaned among the nations. That the nations look and they see Israel getting God mediocre sacrifices and they say, he must not be that great. Our idolatry has an effect on God and our relationship with him. So idolatry is a very serious thing. It's pervasive. It's outside of us and inside of us. It has huge and drastic effects. It kills our soul. It attacks those around us and it destroys and damages our relationship with God. But there's hope. There's a hope out of our idolatry. And the hope is actually found in none other than the very God that we are attacking, whose character we are saying is less than what it is. Our hope is first that God loves himself. God chiefly loves himself. Ezekiel 20.14 says, But I, God, acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, before whose sight I had brought them out. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11, for the sake of my name, I delayed my wrath, and for my praise, I restrained it for you in order not to cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory, I will not give to another. If you are a believer... God is fighting for your heart because he wants his glory. The all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God of the universe has one focus, one purpose for which he acts and will not be thwarted. The creator of all, the planner of everything that has happened from creation to the end of times and eternity to come, that one has one purpose. It is for his glory And that one will fight with you against your idolatry. If you are a believer, that one lives in you to enable you to fight. He will do whatever is necessary to turn your heart back to himself. Not only, though, does God love himself, but there's a beauty to this, that there is a duality here, that God, in loving himself, also loves us. Ezekiel 14.5 talks about how God talks about why does, he, why does he do these things? Why does he cast them out? In order to lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from me through all their idols. God loves them enough to bring them back to himself. Verse 11 In order that the house of Israel may no longer stray from me and no longer defile themselves with all their transgressions. Thus they will be my people and I shall be their God, declares the Lord God. God is the greatest and highest joy that we could ever know. It would be unloving for him if he did not call us to himself, to worship himself, if he allowed us to stay worshiping idols, lesser things, unsatisfactory, empty things, he would not love us at all if he were not to call us to himself. 
And God, our hope is that in his nature, in his love for himself, in his desire for his glory, fights on our behalf against our idolatry and for our good because he loves us, fights to draw us to himself, to true worship of him. He is that fountain of living water that we have rejected, and yet he calls us back to himself. We understand that idolatry in its location is outside of us and inside of us. We understand that it has a deathly effect upon our souls, upon those around us, and on our relationship with God. We see yet that God, that good, good God, is our only hope for freeing us because of who he is in his nature and character and because of his love for us. We have this hope that we can be free of idolatry, which leads us to point four. How are we to respond? How do we respond to our idolatry? First, we repent of our sin. Repentance is this twofold process. There's confession. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Confession is our acknowledging of our sin before God. It is agreeing with God. I have done this. It violates your character and nature, who you are. It is sin. But that's only part of repentance. Ezekiel 14, 6 says this. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols and turn your faces away from all your abominations. Instead of having these idols right in front of your face, turn away from them. Full repentance is acknowledging, God, I am here looking at my sin. It is right in front of me. I love this, my idol. And I not only acknowledge it, I then turn toward him. It's a 180 degree shift. It's not I switch from this idol to this idol to this idol. I turn to him. Fully. but how do I stay pursuing him? How do I stay going in that direction? I need to replace my joy in my idol with a greater, higher, more awesome joy found in Christ. And this brings us back full circle to where we started. Go to Psalm 16. Psalm 16, as our hope away from idolatry. David writes this, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. God, you are all that I need. You satisfy me. And I enjoy being in the community of your people because they point me to you. Verse 4, the sorrows of those who have bartered for another God, idolaters, will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offering of blood, nor will I take their name upon my lips. In contrast to them, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. 
Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. The things that I get, what, what I get, my inheritance, is you. You are what I want, Lord. It's pleasant to me, beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Instead of my idol in front of me, I place the Lord in front of me. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. In God, the security I've been searching for in other things, I actually find it. What was leaving me empty now, I have fullness of it. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. My idolatry leads me to death. In him I have the path of life. In this beautiful end, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forever. God needs to be found, must be found more enjoyable to you than these things that you have pursued, than your idols. Your only hope away from idolatry is to see him for who he is and recognize that and then pursue him continually. Being delighted by him because of his holiness, his worthiness, his value. The very nature of who he is. We replace this artificial joy with worthless, empty, meaningless things with a joy that is full and satisfying, found only in our God. Where is this chiefly seen? In verse 10, For you will not ab abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. The apostles, both Peter and Paul in Acts, actually take this. You can write down Acts 2, 25-28, and then Acts 13, 35. They take this passage and they apply it to Christ. That is our ultimate hope and where our ultimate joy is found. In the gospel, in Christ's work for us. That he who died and was buried, killed for our sins, raised for us to walk in righteousness and seated at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding on our behalf, that one and what he's done is our hope, our joy, our delight to call us from idolatry. Our worship must be based in the gospel that we who were dead, hell-bound sinners have been made sons and daughters of God. That we who were his enemies have been adopted and his friends, his children. That is our hope. That is our joy. That the Savior who was whipped, that the lashes, Isaiah talks about this, the lashes that he bore were our healing. What our God has done for us should drive us to worship he who is so worthy. There is no other, there is nothing like him. 
Your joy in his consistent presence with you is the ultimate and only hope of freedom from idolatry. Replace your worship of worthlessness with worship of him who is worthy. Idolatry is far worse than we could ever think. It is more pervasive than simply something outside of us. It is a heart issue. We cannot just remove these things that are so present, but we have to deal with actually something within us. Its location is pervasive throughout. It's horribly damaging to us, others, and our relationship with God. It not only is present everywhere, it it kills everything within us. And yet we have hope. Our God, our awesome God, because of his love for himself and his love for us, he will fight for us. He will fight our idols to gain our hearts and draw us back to himself. And thus we, if you call yourself a believer, how should you respond? You should repent. Turn from your sin. Confess it to God. And then seek to delight in him, to put yourself ever in his presence before your face. Remember the gospel. Let us pray. Father, you are a good God. You are so, so good. Good does not even really cover it at all. You're kind and generous and awesome. And Lord, we repent. We, we, we come to you as sinners undeserving of grace. Hell-bound sinners that you would be perfectly righteous to condemn. And yet you, the worthy, the valuable God, would come to us to bring us to yourself. Lord, forgive us for our love of lesser things. Give us hearts that are inclined toward you, that love you, that, Lord, Lord, instead of being prone to wonder, we would be prone to love you. Father, we thank you for your awesome work through Christ. And we ask all these things because of him.